This is uh, Dr. Pedro Ramirez, Editor-in-Chief of the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer. And today I have the great pleasure of uh, speaking with Dr. Brian Slomovitz, who is at Mount Sinai Medical Center in Miami Beach, Florida. Uh, Brian is a dear friend and colleague and um, one of the authors of the November lead article uh, titled Evolving Treatment Paradigms in Metastatic or Recurrent Low-Grade Endometrial Cancer. When is hormonal-based therapy the preferred option? Brian, thank you so much for, for the invitation and welcome to the podcast. Well, Pedro, thank you so much. Thank you so much for the invitation. Um, you know, it's it's humbling to be invited to this. Uh I I've always appreciated our friendship, and now the the your role as the editor of really the preeminent gynecologic oncology journal in our field. Um, I'm I'm fortunate to have you know this uh, working relationship with you. So thank you for having me. Of course, of course. Uh, so, uh, Brian, lots of uh, lots of points to uh, discuss, and um, I wanted to first uh, in, uh, ask you uh, if we can start by discussing how are low grade tumors distinct from high grade tumors at the molecular level. Yeah, you know that, that's that's a uh, that's really one of the basis when we talk about endometrial cancers. We say that they're not all endometrial cancers are the same, and really what we're talking about is low grade versus high grade. Now, truthfully, that separation is probably a little bit antiquated. When we go back to, um, you know, earlier times, we had the type one, type two endometrial cancers. The type one were typically the estrogen-driven, um, obesity, diabetic, um, he obviously heavier weight patient, um, better outcome, more common endometrial cancers, and those are really what were were um, that's the pathogenesis leading to a low-grade tumor grade one, two, endometrioid, endometrial cancers. Well, the higher grade tumors were really the ones that were um, non-endometrioid histology, the clear cells, the um, serous. Now we even consider carcinosarcomas in that group. And even the poorly differentiated endometrioid, endometrial cancers. And that's a subgroup of high grade. Um, just for a clarification for our audience, if it's a rare histology, by definition, it's high grade. There's no low grade serous or low grade clear cell. That's an important point. But um, that brings a difference. And that was really the, I would say more of a, almost we could call it historical difference, but that's sort of the difference as we see it. But now when what we're calling the molecular era, and I'm sure we'll talk about this more, we're really doing molecular subclassifications, um, which weed out some of the low grade and high grade tumors as well. But um, that's what, that's how we got to where we are today. Yeah. And Brian, you know, you obviously mentioned uh, the molecular classification. We're going to be speaking about that as well. But any time the, the topic of low grade comes up, um, there's always a discussion about the ER and PR status, estrogen, progesterone receptor status. And I was wondering, is, is there any data as to whether the percentage of ER and PR status, does that have any impact on the outcomes? Yeah, no, thank you for that. It, it's it. So, so the first way I want to clarify that is, is when we talk about ER and PR and endometrial cancer, there aren't well-defined metrics or bars of what's positive, what's negative. When we're client, when we're designing clinical trials, that's one of the reasons why we rarely say ER positive versus ER negative. We use low grade, we use low grade as a surrogate for that because there's no like a, a set definition, unlike in breast cancer, for example. Um, but we do know many of the low-grade tumors do have estrogen receptor and progesterone receptor positivity. And yes, in fact, there is data. While it's not robust data, there is data that suggests the higher the percentage of estrogen or hormonal receptor positivity, the more likely um, to respond to, to hormonal-based therapy. 
Excellent. Um, <clears throat> let's um, talk a little bit about chemotherapy in this patient population. The topic of chemotherapy and response to this approach in patients with low-grade endometrial cancer. And also, does the molecular profiling impact the response to chemotherapy? Thank you for that question. When we're talking about chemotherapy in endometrial cancer, traditionally, we're using chemotherapy for those patients with advanced or recurrent disease. Um, and you know, and, and we feel that that's working. We feel that's the best therapy. A lot of what we've learned about chemotherapy has been done through um, GOG legacy trials, really landmark trials, which helped us come up from cisplatinum adriamycin up to carboplatin paclitaxel for the best chemotherapeutic regimen for this disease. Uh, back in 2007, uh, one of the leaders in our field, Scott McMeekin, unfortunately, who's no longer with us, did a meta-analysis looking at the responses of chemotherapy in a series of the GOG trials. And one of the things they found there was a lower response rate of to chemotherapy for low-grade tumors when compared to high-grade tumors. And that makes sense, right? We know that high-grade tumors are more likely undergoing mitoses. When we talk about what does chemotherapy go after, it's the weed killer that goes after cells that are in the cell cycle. High-grade tumors more likely not to be in mitosis um, rest, so they're getting targeted by chemo, low-grade, a little bit more indolent, so they're not as responsive. Now, when we talk about the, the, the molecular profiling and their response to therapy, you know, it, it's really um, great that we've looked at molecular classifications of tumors um, as, you know, first really written about in 2013 in the TCGA paper, landmark paper that Doug Levine and our specialty was involved with. And that's really progressed over the last 10 years to most recently, the FIGO class, um, staging system for endometrial cancer has really incorporated incorporated molecular classifications into the definition of these tumors. Now, remember, Pedro, when we're talking about FIGO staging, it's supposed to be reproducible throughout the world. The fact that molecular classifications is start at standard of care, not only in the U.S., but in Europe but, and in Asia, but worldwide, it's pretty remarkable. Now, when we look at the molecular classifications, um, you know, they're, they're not clearly type 1 versus type 2, low-grade versus high-grade, but there's four subtypes. There's those with the poly mutations, which interesting, and those outside the scope of this talk were de-escalating therapy because those patients do so well. There's the microsatellite instability patients, the ones that have deficiency in MMR. Well, we're worried about chemo in that setting. Game changer, immunotherapy works. So we're really focusing on immunotherapy. Then it's the patients with a no, NSMP, no specific molecular profile versus the high grade, the P53 abnormalities. And that's really where we're differentiating which ones are more responsive to chemo or not. Um, and the answer is yes, it's the high grade. So that was a really long-winded answer of saying, yes, the molecular profile does impact the response. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and uh, now we get into some of the questions from the uh, from the fellows in the journal. And this first question, uh, Brian, is from Matt Wager. He's at the University of Wisconsin. And um, he's asking, in the recurrent setting, what patient and oncologic factors go into your decision-making when considering different types of hormonal therapies? Right, that's great. Matt, thank you very much for that question. Um, every patient is considered, is considered individually. So when we're looking at the patient in the recurrent setting, the, really the first question we look at is, did they get anything in the adjuvant setting? And if they did, how quickly did it take them to recur? So for example, if they got chemotherapy in the adjuvant setting and they recurred in less than a year after chemo, um, while chemotherapy might be an option, it'll be a different chem chemotherapeutic regimen. Then when I'm looking at this patient, I wanna look at the histology, sites of recurrence, 
um, how, you know, what, what's the symptomatology? Are they uh, short of breath? And are they, you know, or they have malignant ascites and things like that? Or is it more of an indolent, slow-growing tumor? Um, I could say almost universally, almost universally, the high-grade tumors deserve chemotherapy in the first line. Um, based on some of the data that we've learned from GY018 and Ruby, there is a role for um, there, there's a role for uh, checkpoint inhibition in those patients. But it's the low-grade tumors that I'm really excited about incorporating hormonal therapy into some of the first-line treatments for these patients for two reasons. One, it's less toxic, and two, they respond. And three, their responses to chemotherapy are really going to be similar whether they got hormonal therapy first or not. Last point here, remember when we talk about the landmark Ruby and GY018 trials, those trials allowed for prior hormonal therapy, which a lot of people don't realize. Hmm. So if you give hormonal therapy, help slow the disease down, maybe it's going to work. If not, it's helping patients get maybe even a little bit stronger and holding the disease off before they need to get chemotherapy. Very well. Um, Brian, this question actually came from multiple fellows. Um, and the question is, what markers would you evaluate in metastatic or recurrent patients to define a treatment-based hormone therapy? Right. That, so that, um, I, I love that question. So it's when we're talking about markers and what markers we're we doing, first, I want to talk about um, the universally accepted markers. Which markers do I have right off the start? So my patients with endometrial cancer at the time of their diagnosis, okay, I'm doing DMMR testing. And I know we're going to talk about hormonal testing, but I want to talk about what I already have. DMMR testing, um, that's the immunohistochemistry for MLH1, MSH2, um, ML MSH6, and PMS2. I'm also doing estrogen receptor and progesterone receptor testing in that setting. Now, for the high-grade tumors, I'm also adding in um, HER2 testing and P53 as well, because I think those could help us as we move forward in treating these diseases. Now, when I'm talking about when, whether or not I'm going to treat based on a hormonal-based therapy, obviously, it's the estrogen receptor and progesterone receptor positivity that matters. But Pedro, as you know, and part of the, as you taught me, it's not only hormonal therapy, where sometimes we're using another biomarker-driven therapy in combination. So, for example, um, one of the things that I've worked on starting at M when I was at MD Anderson is Everolimus, an mTOR inhibitor, in combination with hormonal therapy. And we found in those tumors, not only does histology and estrogen receptor positivity matter, but we found that in those patients, pa tumors with beta-catenin mutations had actually higher uh, uh, likelihood of responding. So that's another you know, biomarker that we may or may not be looking at. Um, obviously, hormone receptor negativity is something that will lean us away towards hormone receptors. And even though the DMMR doesn't directly affect hormones or not, if they're MSI high um, DMMR, I'm giving immun immunotherapy first. There's really little mm -hmm. reason not to. Sure. Um, this, this question, Brian, comes from Giuseppe Cucinella in Italy. And um, he asks, ER and PR positivity are assessed by the hormone receptor status. In the nonspecific molecular profile groups, some cutoffs are helpful to differentiate the prognosis among the ERPR positive patients. What about the intracellular signal? Do you think we need more specific biomarkers of the intracellular action to say that a patient is ERPR positive and therefore sensitive to hormone treatment? You know, um, Giuseppe, thank you very much for the question. Um, you know, it's interesting when we're looking at the combination 
of biomarker-driven therapies with hormonal therapies, we're focusing on two pathways. One, the estrogen receptor goes into the nucleus, and that's where the traditional estrogen receptor blockade, ha blockade happens. But in the cytoplasm, in the growth factor pathway, that's where the interaction between the mTOR inhibitors and or the CDK4-6 inhibitors work to what we call help overcome hormonal resistance. One of the reasons why we consider these hormonal-based therapies, because they don't work great by themselves. Um, I, I do, you know, the, whether there's, um, there's the ESR1, there's other estrogen receptor surrogates to see if they'll respond or not. Um, unfortunately, none of them are ready for prime time yet. I know a lot of our fellows are, are, are doing a lot of translational and preclinical work looking at that. But at this time, we don't have a great predictive marker as far as which um, tumors are going to respond or not to hormonal-based therapy outside of histology and grade and now um, biomarker classifications. Okay. Um, Sida Sahin Akar from Turkey. Uh, she's asking, what is the optimal treatment duration for hormonal therapy in recurrent low-grade endometrial cancer? It's a great question. One of the things that when we talk about optimal treatment duration, you know, it's a tough question. I mean, number one, if you give six cycles of chemotherapy and the disease goes away, there's your, there's your treatment duration. But when we're talking about patients that have, you know, let's talk about hormonal therapy. When we talk about hormonal therapies, it's not cytotoxic. As oncologists, we all, especially in the US, we always want the kill. We want the cells to go away. Hormonal therapies are more cytostatic. So when we're looking at tumor responses, we not only have to look at the imaging, we have to look at the patient reported outcomes, how well they're doing. And we have to look at, you know, stable disease is a good outcome if, they have a, if, they have a, if they're doing well, if they're feeling well. So I think as far as optimal treatment duration, uh, it's a tough question because hormonal therapies are also very, very, very well tolerated. So if I have a patient who has stable disease, they're on a hormonal therapy, whether it be an AI, whether it be progestins, whether it be mTOR with, with AI, and they're doing well, and even if the disease is not going away, um, you know, God willing, I'll keep them on for a long time. Mm. My favorite phrase is oncology. One of my favorite phrases when I'm talking to my patients is, you know, extreme long-term complications or side effects. Because the first thing that's telling me is they're living for a long time. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, this question comes from Luigi De Vitis in, uh, in Italy. And he has patients with recurrent or advanced low-grade endometrial, endometrial cancer could have been enrolled in the RUBY trial. And approximately 350 patients were enrolled in the NRG GYO018. Given the very positive results of these trials, would you recommend immune checkpoint inhibitors in these patients, even in the absence of an exploratory subgroup analysis? Yeah, so when we're talking about, you know, and I know these these these, these studies quite well, when we're looking at uh, Ruby and uh, GY018, the first teaser is at the um, ESMO meeting. Um, I, I just have the, you know, we, we know the abstracts. I, 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 the the data is not publicly available, but there will be a presentation on Ruby looking at by molecular subclassifications. Mm -hmm. So I think that'll be for for the this is going to come out in November. So um, at this at the time this comes out, you'll be able to look back and, and see what that those those differences are. Um, I would say that you know again Ruby GY zero eight rule number one if they're DMMR MSI, they, I'm not going to argue for hormonal therapy. They need to get a checkpoint. They need to get immunotherapy. But when we're talking about those patients, based on the data that we know now, in my opinion, the um, 
treating PMMR patients in the first line setting still represents an unmet need, meaning the data that we saw from GY018 and from Ruby is not a slam dunk that that's going to be um, the best treatment for those patients. Again, DMMR uh, hazard ratios, unlike we've ever seen, 0.28 and 0 0.30. .30. But in the PMMR setting, and a lot of those are going to be low-grade tumors, um, th th there's still room for improvement. Yeah. Um, another question from Luigi DeVitis. Um, he asks, in, in, uh, in your manuscript, you mentioned that subgroup exploratory analysis of Keynote 775 reported significant benefit in overall survival and progression-free survival for lenvatinib and pembrolizumab in low-grade endometrioid tumors. So similar to the previous question, in which cases would you recommend lenvatinib, pembrolizumab instead of hormonal therapy? It's a great question. You know, as as um, I'm a big um, FDA guy, if it's in the FDA, it's sort of like the Bible. Right now, pembrolizumab is currently written in the recurrent setting. In the second, I'm sorry, in the second line recurrent setting. But as I mentioned, it also allows for um, chemotherapy as first line, but hormonal therapy oftentimes isn't included as a line of therapy in these patients. So if all else is being equal in a low-grade patient with an indolent tumor who has a decent performance status, I'm going to start with hormonal therapy, then I'll follow with chemotherapy, and then I'd go with pembrolizumab. Mm. The question here is, after I'm done with hormonal therapy, how many of those patients am I going to go with the the um, the Ruby or GY018 regimen, carboplatin, palcotaxel, and pembrolizumab, or how many are they going to go with um, just keeping carboplatin and palcotaxel? And then I'm going to say one other thing here, Pedro, that you know much about. Or am I going to, um, with checkpoint, or am I going to save the checkpoint until the second line? Mm -hmm. Now, remember, there what this outside the scope of this talk is the role of cell and nexer in these patients. Mm. We've all seen the positive, again, I'll, I'll, as an aside, we've all seen the positive Ciendo data on cell and nexer, where an unspecified subgroup analysis showed in these P53 wild type tumor. Again, low-grade tumors or P53 wild type, in the selenexer maintenance, they had a much, much better outcome mm. when with selenexer than placebo. And I know at your institution and at my institution, we have what we call the export trial, export EC trial open, which is further evaluating that. So what yeah. we learned, Anderson, what you taught me, clinical trial first. In this setting today, I'm giving hormonal therapy. If they need chemo, they're going to go on the export trial. And then I'll follow with Pembrol and Vatinib or another clinical trial in the second line setting. Yeah, excellent. I, um, I want to follow up with a question from uh, George Hagel in uh, Venezuela. And he's asking, according to the four existing molecular groups, do you think a hormonal profile of evaluation adjusted to each of the molecular types should be developed to have more precision? Right. Yeah, Jorge, that's a, that's a great question. The question, you know, right now, I think our first job is going to be to help our subspecialty field get a, used get used to the molecular four molecular subclassifications, and even with the four molecular subclassifications, we're still doing hormonal based testing. As far as formally incorporating hormonal subclassifications within these classifications, I think it's not ready for prime time. I think there'll be a lot of investigators and our fellows and others who are going to be looking at this, who are going to be investigating this to see if we could come up with a better algorithm that'll better define prognostic markers of hormonal response. And I'm sure that what you're alluding to will be included in that. But right now, um, I would say um, I'm, I'm, I'm hesitant to have a formal incorporation of that. 
but we do use all the information, the molecular subclassification with the hormonal status and histology in order to best determine um, what the uh, best regimen will be. And as an aside, even the NSMP tumors, there are some serous and carcinosarcomas in that group, albeit not, not a lot, there are some. Um, and I wouldn't treat a serous uh, patient nor a carcinosarc um, unless there's extreme hormone receptor positivity at this time. Very well. Um, this one is back from Matt Wager, and uh, he's asking, is there a role of hormonal therapy in MMR deficient and P53 abnormal endometrial cancers, either alone or in combination with other treatments? Yeah, so when we're talking about um, these tumors, it's tough to determine or to really see yet if there's if the combination of the um, checkpoint inhibitors with hormonal-based therapies will play a difference. Um, you know, a lot of times the mechanism of action of these immunotherapies is a bit different than the hormonal-based therapies. There are some investigations that are being done in breast cancer, but I would say right now um, the the combination treatments of the DMMR with hormonal therapy is not ready for prime time. And the other thing I would say in the P53 abnormal endometrial cancers, it's definitely not ready for prime time. Remember, we don't give hormonal therapy with chemotherapy. You know, hormonal therapy sort of wants to keep them out of the cell cycle, while chemotherapy only works in the cell cycle. So I've used, um, and I think Pedro, you were one who taught me this when we did a paper on letrozole in the maintenance setting for <laughs> ovarian cancer. We don't use hormonal therapy with chemo because the chemo, we want them in the cell cycle. We could use it in maintenance, but not with. But that's a great question. Excellent. And I'll go next to the question by Giuseppe Cucinella. Um, he's asking, in the absence of molecular profiling, how safely can we treat patients with endometrial cancers, grade one or grade two, with hormonal therapy in the first line? And are grade one and grade two the same tumor with the same behavior? That's a great question. And, you know, and I understand that the beauty of your journal is that we're really hitting a global audience and some of the, your, your um, audience doesn't have the ability to do molecular classifications and relying only on histology. So going back, when we talk about low-grade versus high-grade, yes, I consider low-grade to be the grade one and grade two tumors. So I'm not going to say that they're exactly the same, because when in, in areas that we have the more of ability to differentiate, we see there are some differences. But in general, I would say that grade one and grade two, while they're not the same tumor, they could sort of be treated the same way. And as I mentioned earlier, we're using that as a surrogate for estrogen receptor positivity, grade one or grade two, and we're doing that in some of our trial designs. So I think that it would be safe to treat grade one and grade tumors and grade one or grade two tumors with hormonal therapy. As I alluded to earlier, while there may be a difference in response between the hormonal receptor positivity, there are still responders. So um, on an individual patient level, again, it's 0% response or 100%, but when we're looking at studies, there are patients that are going to respond who have grade two tumors. Excellent. And uh, Brian, you mentioned about the toxicity and the low toxicity of hormonal-based therapy. Uh, this question is from Jessica Mauro, and she's asking, what are the main contraindications to hormonal-based therapy? Yeah, no, so um, I think this is something we've investigated for a long time. The one thing that I highlight in particular is with progestin-based therapy, the increase in development of thromboembolic events. Uh, GOG248R was a study of progestins with an mTOR inhibitor, temsirolimus, um, evaluating the activity there, similar to what we did with aromatase inhibitors and mTORs, but that study had to actually close early the combination arm 
because of an excess number of thromboembolic events. So, and, and especially, as you know, a lot of these endometrial cancer patients, um, as I mentioned, obesity, sed sedentary lifestyles, all other risk factors for blood clots. So I really don't go to progestins as a first choice if I can avoid it because of that side effect. Other side effects of progestins, as you know, water retention, weight gain. So those I'm, uh, I'm a little wary of. Aromatase inhibitors, we could have some bone aches, bone pains. It's not a benign treatment by far, but it's the, I, I, in my hands, I believe it's much more tolerable than some of the uh, some of the other um, hormonal-based therapies out there. Simulated fulvestrant we use. We're also studying, we're outside the scope of this paper, we're looking at SIRDs, um, so, so another a newer class of hormonal-based therapies to, to, to evaluate in, in this for this disease as well. Um, and then some of the targeted therapies, like the, MR, the mTORs and the CDK4-6s, they have their own side, of side, uh, uh, side effect profile as well that we have to be wary of. Um, Brian, this question comes from uh, Guido Rey Balsaki in Argentina, and he's asking, nowadays, what are, what are the typical scenarios where uh, hormonal-based therapy would be considered as first line uh, in the recurrent low-grade endometrial cancer setting? You know, th again, thank you for that question. I think that's um, the theme of really what we're pushing in this article. In my patient populations, uh, recurrence that doesn't happen, that maybe takes a while to develop, not immediately after diagnosis, um, if the quality of life is good, if the tumor burden is um, not huge, um, for example, they don't have ascites, they don't, they're not very symptomatic, these are pa perfect patients to put on hormonal-based therapy first. And, you know, I, I, I believe a couple of things will happen. One, if it doesn't work, you're still going to give chemotherapy with the same likelihood of success. Two, mm. you may get stable disease out of it, which a lot of times patients like stable disease without the side effects of chemotherapy. And three, which we see a lot, they're going to respond to hormonal therapy. You may yeah. like there's a likelihood of avoiding chemotherapy altogether. Mm. Brian, this, uh, this question came from multiple of the fellows in uh, the question um, I think certainly is one <clears throat> that we often uh, discuss is that when selecting the hormonal therapy, there's so many potential choices for our patients. How do you go about choosing which one is the best? Yep. No, um, I, I love that question because this is a question we have every day in, in our clinics. Which one is the best? Um, first thing I'm going to do is, is there a clinical trial available? And I'll go for the clinical trial. Um, there's there's a, a lot of, that's coming around with CDK4-6 inhibitors. Um, there's some um, uh, other type of targets, newer targets looking at the mTOR inhibition as well. But, you know, in, in standard outside of clinical trials, I really like aromatase inhibitors in, com in combination with biomarker-driven therapies. Aromatase inhibitors by themselves, both in the Paragon trial and in the um, GC, um, the NCIC, a Canadian trial, you know, modest response rates of 9%, but, but combining them with mTORs or CDK4-6, we're seeing a, a much longer progression-free survival. Um, so in general, effectiveness, toxicity profile are what I take into consideration when I'm choosing which agents to give. Very well. And uh, Brian, one last question, and this one comes from Giuseppe Caruso. And uh, he asks, endocrine therapy alone uh, is unlikely to provide high response rates and survival benefits in low-grade metastatic or recurrent endometrial cancer. There are several combination regimens being studied. Which ones do you think right now are the most promising? Yeah, no, thank you so much for that. Um, and, and he's right. There's, there, the, the response rates can be modest. 
But when we're given hormonal-based therapies, we have to think of cytostatic effects and prolonged PFS. We showed that in mTOR, Everolimus versus Inletrazole, how in chemo-naive patients, it was a 28-month progression-free survival, numbers that we've never seen before. Not as good as chemo pretreated, but numbers that we've never seen and very favorable when you do a cross-trial comparisons against GOG-209. Hmm. Um, I, I think, so, so the response rates I care less about as I care more about progression-free survival. The newer combinations, um, hormones on mTOR, hormones CDK4-6, some of these SIRDs that are coming out are very, zero-destined is very exciting, agent that we're looking at in a, in a, in a proof-of-concept trial. Um, you know, I, I think right now the, the menu is exciting, but even more interesting is that the best is yet to come. We're doing a lot more research in this area. Uh, and part of the research is going to be educating, educating our treating physicians that hormonal-based therapy is an option for our patients. Well, Brian, thank you so, so much for your time. Thank you for accepting our, our invitation. Always so, so informative. And uh, and uh, I always appreciate the discussion on these topics uh, with you. Again, thank you for sending this manuscript to our journal. And we really look forward to hearing more about this in the uh, journal club for the article. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Pedro. And thanks, Arthur. I really, thanks for the invitation. It's, it's, it's a humbling opportunity. So I appreciate it.